When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tent. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, one of the most common questions that I receive about botanical method aquariums is about how these systems play out in the long run over extended periods of time, how you manage them, you know, for the long haul. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, for whatever reason, many in the mainstream aquarium hobby outside of our little niche are under the impression that botanical method tanks are, you know, forever teetering on the brink of disaster, running precariously close to total environmental failure if we take our eyes off them for even the shortest period of time. It's a bizarre, if not completely erroneous viewpoint, which I think had its origins in, yet again, a complete misunderstanding of how the botanical method aquarium is conceived, set up, and managed. I believe that the appearance of our tanks with the tinted water, the decomposing leaves, and the accumulating detritus gives the uninformed the impression that we're simply managing ticking biological time bombs with marginal water quality, improper filtration, and overall lack of care. Now, the reality couldn't be more the opposite. As we've come to find out as a community over the decades, botanical method aquariums run incredibly stable, healthily, and yeah, easily once they're established. The whole mindset behind how these tanks are established and run involves creating the means for a stable natural ecology, valuing bacteria, fungi, and other microfauna as an intimate part of our systems. This is the foundational part of what we do. So it kind of is a head scratcher when people think these things are, you know, teetering on the brink. And if you leave them alone for a minute, they're going to fall into disaster. It, you know, what we do involves facilitating the proper conditions for these organisms to thrive and do their thing, just as they've done in nature for eons to the benefit of our closed systems. All of the leaves and botanicals are the operating system, which our little microcosms run on. These tanks just look a bit different from what hobbyists are familiar with. And the myth about these tanks needing so much extra care to avoid disaster is pretty amusing to me. Like any well-managed aquarium, the botanical method system actually runs quite smoothly, providing a healthy environment for fishes, despite the unorthodox aesthetics. They handle minor changes and occasional moments of lack of attention just fine. In most instances, think about this, the fishes that we keep are not so delicate and the closed environments we provide aren't running so close to the edge that we should panic when some random factor changes things up one day. I don't know, the filter stops, the lights don't run on, whatever. And consider this, when we purchase our fishes, they're unceremoniously, boy, did I botch that word, unceremoniously. I don't know why I had so much trouble with that. They're unceremoniously netted out of the tank or the stream or lake or river or whatever where they're found placed in a plastic bag and transported for who knows how long and possibly making a few stops along the way before they ultimately land on your aquarium, not being fed along the whole trip. That's a lot of change to cope with, a lot of stress. But guess what? Fishes manage to deal with it somehow. So it kind of goes without saying that even a bout of, you know, quote unquote, benign neglect from time to time isn't going to spell Armageddon for your tank. I mean, it, it shouldn't. 
botanical method aquariums, especially well-established ones in my ex- can in my experience, run for almost indefinite periods of time with minimal maintenance. Now, let me make it perfectly clear. I'm not saying that you can and should forego, you know, water exchanges or other routine husbandry tasks, you know, tasks in your botanical method aquarium. I'm not advocating laziness. I am, however, suggesting that these systems based, which, you know, are based largely upon ecology and they're configured in some ways like the wild habitats they prefer to represent, can endure periods of time when you're not on top of things all at once. Again, it's really a function of how we set up these tanks to begin with. We encourage the growth of bacteria, fungi, and microorganisms and fuel their growth by supplying botanical materials for them to colonize and feed upon. There's a more or less a continuous supply of food for these organisms at the bottom of the food shade uh, to keep doing their job. And that's a big fundamental thing to think about. I don't pretend to have all the answers, but after decades of constructing, observing, and testing botanical method aquariums under all sorts of situations, I can definitely attest to their long-term reliability and, you know, ability to rebound easily from, you know, occasional periods of neglect. This is something that we as hobbyists likely have some degree of firsthand experience with. I know that I do. I mean, over the lifetime that I've been in the hobby, there have been a number of times that for one reason or another, I simply let my aquariums run themselves, save an occasional water change or filter media cleaning, and of course, regular feeding, which consists of tossing in a few flakes or pellets or whatever was on hand at the time. You know, putting mother nature in control. Sounds familiar, right? I think a particularly fond memory of this type of practice uh, comes from my senior year back in high school when I was really into breeding killies in addition to keeping saltwater cichlids, tetras, and of course the usual high school pursuits of girls, sports, socializing, the beach, all that kind of stuff. As a junior member of the American Killifish Association, I obtained a group of the clown killie, Epiplatus annulatus monroviae, and I was determined to breed these little fuckers. Of course, they also had a reputation for being just a bit of a challenge, requiring really steadfast care, feeding, and a fair measure of you know, patience. And as a busy kid, I had little patience, although probably more than the average high school guy. After all, I was a fish geek, right? So I was delighted to learn that these little fishes were thought to fare better in permanent and so-called natural setups, which is fish geek code, you know, geek code, ah, fish geek code. Why am I tripping over words today? It's fish geek code for set and forget. You know what I mean? So, of course, I thought this, this species would be a perfect fish for my busy lifestyle at the time. And it, it kind of was in a way. Um, I set up two pairs and I think a few extra females in a two and a half gallon tank. And it was planted with like water sprite, hygrophila, rotala, you know, the usual kind of cheap available plants. And it grew like a little jungle. It was given moderate light from a small tank and uh, from a small fixture and uh, had a little sponge filter providing some, you know, circulation and filtration. The tank looked pretty cool and it ran just fine with little intervention on my part to begin with. In fact, I'm embarrassed to admit that I would sometimes go a week or more without so much as looking at the tank long enough to toss some food in there. Yeah, I went through periods of time like that. I think we all have. So one day, I think it was during spring break, I took the time to really stare into the tank to see what was going on. And sure enough, upon close examination, I saw several tiny little fry flitting in among the rotala. It was pretty cool. I was stoked. Now, rather than panic and start hatching brine shrimp and whatever, I made the, what I look back on, the very mature and level-headed decision to simply leave them alone as I'd been doing for months. I resisted the 
you know, temptation and let them out, power feed them and otherwise intervene in their growth. I reason that this could, you know, this could be problematic. I could hardly do better than what they were apparently being provided by nature. And as they've been doing successfully for eons, they were left on their own and doing just fine. So I ultimately ended up with a pretty stable population of, I think it was around like 12 to 15 of these fishes in a tank that I maintained. I use that in air quotes. I maintained for around three to four years. And I, ironically, the difficulty started when I finally had the time to get really into taking care of the fishes and took more initiative and control, and I, again, air quotes, of the breeding process. Ultimately, I slowly lost, you know, ultimately I lost the entire colony over time. So the irony there is that it's like sometimes it's best to just stay the hell away. But it was a very valuable lesson. Sometimes what we would classify as benign neglect is actually the best thing we can do, the closest imitation to nature that we can offer fishes in captive environments. Other times it's a fusion of both hands-on and hands-off approaches. It's kind of the reefer mentality right now. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that you abandon all care to your fishes or that you can do this in botanical tanks or any type of tank, but I am suggesting that you reconsider the way that you might care for some of the more demanding varieties, at least from a, a breeding and, and, and husbandry aspect anyways. Sometimes what we would classify as benign neglect is actually the best thing we could do, the closest imitation to nature that we can offer fishes in captive environments. I experimented with this a few years back in my no-scape leaf litter tank for Paracaridon simulans, the green neon tetra. You probably remember this. It was about 2019, 2020. Really productive time for me, um, you know, idea-wise. Um, it was set up in the hopes of passively feeding the fish via the organisms that were living in and produced via the layer of decomposing leaf litter, which comprised the entire hardscape of the aquarium. It worked, and it worked really well. And as part of this experiment... I did not feed these fishes during the entire seven-month duration. And they not only were as fat and happy as any green neon tetras I'd ever seen, but they actually spawned repeatedly in this tank. They subsisted entirely on food sources produced by the aquarium. As I've reiterated previously, the tank was pre-stocked with some small crustaceans, paramecium cultures, and some worms and stuff like that, and allowed to sort of break in and sit for like a month before fishes were even at it. And it was essentially set up to succeed in this fashion. And hell, it did. I repeated a variation with, uh, of this whole thing with my prized Tucano Ichthys Tucano, the Tucano Tetras, and had similar good results. I think I shared that with you over the last couple of years as well. That was just a great tank, one of my favorite I've ever had. After decades of playing with these types of botanical aquariums, I am now a firm believer that in a well-established, properly cared for botanical method aquarium, fishes will find sustenance among the resources already present in their environment. That's a huge thing. I don't know if a lot of tanks can say that, but I really believe we can say that in a botanical method tank. In many cases, the tank itself may not produce enough food to sustain an entire population of, say, mid-sized adult fishes. However, it might be able to supplement whatever feeding you're actually doing as an aquarist and very likely could do the same for fry until they're caught and moved into a quote-unquote proper nursery tank. Yet you don't have to go nuts trying to control every aspect of the tank. If you miss a feeding now and again or go on vacation or whatever, botanical aquariums are going to handle it really well. Sometimes it's best to simply monitor and not intervene so much. I know it's hard for us hands-on fish geeks, particularly for hardcore hobbyists like myself to do, but it oftentimes works far better than our efforts to take control of the situation. Nature really knows how to do this stuff. She's been doing it for eons. 
So for the final time, I'm not suggesting to abandon husbandry and care protocols in favor of neglect just to see what happens. What I am suggesting is that sometimes closed systems can regulate themselves a bit with minimal intervention on our part, and botanical method aquariums excel at that. Not quite set and forget, but something sort of close, right? Plants and animals whose needs are being met will thrive and come to dominate their closed little ecosystems, just like they do in nature, for better or for worse. In fact, one could probably make the argument that, at least on a superficial level, the benignly neglected botanical method aquarium may be the closest imitation of nature that we can present. Let nature do her thing, right? Something to think about. So that's a little today's little thought. Stay curious, stay diligent, stay observant, stay thoughtful, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.